right, take your Bibles and make your way to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Good to catch up. Today is our day where we are to invite people to our houses or be invited over. Uh, uh, this is a, a fellowship day for our church, and we trust that you have people coming to your home or you're going somewhere. If not, you still have that time afterwards to grab somebody and uh, spend time with one another. In a couple weeks, we're going to encourage you to invite somebody who doesn't go to church into your home with a purpose to, to build relationships. So that's coming up in a few weeks. Our text today is Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 28. We'll end out this uh, chapter here in a great teaching of Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath. Follow along as we read. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave to those who were with them. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of gathering. Mm. Weeks are long at times when we go through battles. We've lost loved ones, Lord. We've, we've hurt and wept and rejoiced and all kinds of things have happened, Lord. And, and yet you give us the blessing of assembly. You give us the blessing of coming together corporately for worship, for instruction, for encouragement, Lord. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for knowing we needed that, Lord. And we pray that as we study through this, that we would handle our corporate worship in a way that just exalts you and edifies one another. Lord, we do pray for those who can't be here today, Lord, those who uh, are suffering from one ailment or another. We pray that you would heal them, Lord. Give them strength. For those who have lost loved ones over these last five weeks, Lord, strengthen them. Cause them to put their faith and trust in you every moment, Lord. May their tears lead them to Christ. May their joy lead them to Christ in each and every circumstance. Father, we pray for the living. Those of us that you have chose to leave here now, may we fully embrace who you are and follow you in a way that exhibits the gospel. Strengthen us to do that, Lord. On our own, we, we don't desire those things. But you in us, you abiding in us, us abiding in you, we can find great joy as we gather. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this year, uh, Aaron let me go to camp. Um, I've been trying, he just didn't let me go. But this year, he, he, I twisted his arm enough, he let me go to camp. Uh, uh, what a joy we had there. Gina and I took off and did a couple of sessions up there with the young people. Um, I was truly, truly encouraged by the youth of our church. Uh, 
I, I'm one that loves to put the cookies just on a shelf just a little bit <laughs> up. Uh, we don't think everything needs to be on the bottom shelf. We want to stretch them a little bit. And so I'm always interested of how our youth will respond to, to doctrine and theology that's based in Christ-centeredness. And wow, did our young people respond to that. In fact, um, I was so encouraged by what they rehearsed back to me of what they heard and understood. It, it completely encouraged me. And it reminds you that we have these young people within our church who know the Lord Jesus Christ, have the Spirit of God with them, and then can engage in great truth. And so what a joy to have been with them. It reminded me this morning, like actually this morning I came across a poem from a young man, um, uh, born in the, 17, in the 1700s, died at age of 21, I think in 1806. Uh, he wrote a poem they found after his death. And and I was, I was thinking about camp, and I came across this poem, I thought, you know, our, our young people have such great understanding of God and, and the things that they can do. And so let me read this poem. I think it's just an encouragement. We've been through a lot. Uh, we have families that are still grieving over their losses. But this is a young man, probably written the age of a lot of our youth that are in this room. Listen to what he wrote from his heart. He said, often sorrow, often woe. Onward, Christian, onward, go. Fight the fight, maintain the strife, strengthen with the bread of life. Onward, Christian, onward, go. Join the war and face the foe. Faint not, must, much does yet remain. Dreary is the long campaign. Shrink not, Christian, will we yield? Will we quit the painful field? Will ye flee in danger's hour? Know ye not the captain's power? Let your drooping heart be glad. March in heavenly, heavenly armored clad. Fight nor think the battle long. Victory soon shall be our song. Let not sorrow dim your eye. Soon shall every tear be dry. Let not fears your course impede. Great your strength if great your need. Onward. Then in battle move, more than conquerors we shall prove. Though oppressed by many a foe, Christian shoulders, on we go. Uh, what a great poem, written by somebody our age of our young people in this church. And it reminds you, when we teach the scriptures, when we um, uh, pour ourselves into the word of God, it doesn't matter what age you are. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and he has placed his spirit within you. There is no limit to the growth of worshiping the Lord. In our text today, the Lord Jesus Christ exposes yet another title of himself. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. It is an amazing title. And it's one of the things why I love to study the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And you'll find me over these years as we go that every couple of years I'll revert back and teach through a gospel. It is because I find such joy in knowing Jesus more through the gospel accounts. I think the gospel accounts give us a very accurate understanding of who he is, what he did. He's God in flesh. He's our representative on this world, walking through this life in order to die for us. And so you come very close to him. You, you see him personally. You see him as his divine person as well. And this text really shows, as we'll see, that he's telling them that I wrote the Ten Commandments, 
They're my commandments, and I actually rule over them. You've abused them. And so you see this div- the divine nature of him as well as his humanity. You really num- know, come to know our Lord Jesus Christ. You also see him deal with sin. I think it's very good for us. He's dealing with religious people. Very, most of his encounters outside of the demonic stuff that's going on uh, that he deals with is dealing with religious people. These people went, quote, to church or to synagogue or Sabbath. All the time, most of who he's dealing with are very religious people. And yet, he's constantly engaging in sin. Engaging, dealing with their sin, their struggles, trying to bring them to the knowledge of himself. And then we see him dispense such grace. When you walk with Jesus through the Gospels, you see this compassionate, loving Savior. He pours compassion upon undeserved sinners. He gives people over and over what they do not deserve. And it ties your heart closer to him. And as we study it, it leads you to worship. So let's look at this first scene. Number one, the scene on the Sabbath. Here he is. Um, it's a Sabbath day. This is the scene. It's going to get laid out for us of what's going on. And Mark gives us a shorter account. We have the same account in Luke and Matthew, and we'll refer to that as we go along. Now, remember, as we said, Mark doesn't always write in chronological order. Uh, remember, he is uh, doubtlessly learning from Peter's sermons. He's recording these things by the work of the Spirit, and he isn't always in order. So we'll see that uh, Luke records it in a little different order. But it's probably, think about this, it's probably late summer, um, possibly even early fall. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because the grain's ripe. Yeah, I think I saw you say that. The grain's ripe. And so we get an idea of what time of year this is. The Luke account, Luke 6, 1 says this. Now it happened as he was passing through some of the grain fields on the Sabbath that his disciples were picking the heads of grain and rubbing their hands and eating the grain. So um, this is a great, very visual thing, isn't it, right? Uh, On our ranch, we raise grain. We raise a lot of grain, hay. Uh, oats, barley, wheat, those were the three main fields we had going along with alfalfa uh, that we would harvest and feed our livestock throughout the winter. Now, grain is, you either do two things with grain, you either raise it up and hay it and make it into hay, or you raise it up and let it go even longer all the way into the late summer, fall, and let it get hard in the head of it and you, and you harvest it for grain. Clearly, they were harvesting it for grain. So when you're, doing, when you're going for the grain end of it, if that's where the market is and, and you think you can make most money out of the grain end of it, you let that, you let that uh, crop go a long time. And I've been in grain fields many times doing exactly this where you pluck a head off of that and you put it in your hands and you just you rub it together like that. And what it does is it beats the shaft off of it and you take your hands and you blow it off in these kernels of grain, whether it's oats, barley, wheat, Um, are right there, and then you begin to chew on them, and you can tell whether they have really got their sweetness into them um, and whether they're ready to be harvested. And that's just a simple way. Men still do it to this day, how they look at grain. And you can kind of see that as these men are going through this field. Now, um, what's what's fascinating about grain is that it has a lot of sugar in it. And, And we know that wheat, if you have... Uh, wheat allergies or something like that, we know, or you're diabetic, that it can create sugars in your body. Well, when you study grain, when it grows, we would watch it from the bottom, from where it comes out of the ground, the stalk would begin to change color. And you can actually watch the sugars push up into the heads to know best when to cut it. 
And so this is all happening. And here's Jesus walking through this with his disciples. And they're picking this grain. It's clearly almost ready to harvest because these men are having a little snack along the way. And every good road trip needs a snack, doesn't it? They're walking. They're headed probably to a synagogue where Jesus is going to teach. And they're going along there. Maybe it's early and they didn't quite get breakfast. They're grabbing some of those heads. Um, in, the, in the Bible allowed for this, the law allowed for this, Deuteronomy chapter 23, 25 said, when you enter your neighbor's stand of grain, you may pluck heads with your hands, but you shall not yield or wield a sickle in your neighbor's stand. So you can't go in there and go, hey, yeah, the law says, and start bailing hay of your, of your neighbors. But you can go along, the law allowed for them to pick grain and, and to, just to eat it, because how much grain can you take by just picking a head or two? When you go along. So you can see the scene of what's going on him. They're, they're skirting this path of this field, most likely on their way to synagogue. But somehow, the traditionalist, Phar- the traditionalist Pharisees are watching. Now, they have a law that they could not walk over 3,000 uh, feet on a Sabbath. And I'm going to explain that in a minute, <laughs> what they're doing. So somehow, this is either close to the synagogue or their homes, or they've broken the law to watch them do this anyway. Now, Jesus and his disciples are doing exactly um, what was within the old covenant. They were living underneath that old covenant. But it broke the self-righteous lines of the traditions. And now Jesus is in trouble with them. Let's see how he handles point number two, the Sabbath and its keepers. Look at verse 24, how they come at him. The Pharisees were saying to, to him, look, why are they doing what is, now look at what they use, they use is unlawful. On the Sabbath. Why are they doing this? Now the Luke account shows the attack is not just against the disciples, but it's against the Lord Jesus. The account is in Luke chapter 6. He says, but some of the Pharisees said, why do you, they're, they're saying this about Jesus, do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So what they would equate it is, once you pick that head, you were now harvesting. So you've broken the law there. And once you have taken that and you've begun to remove the husk, you are now sifting wheat and threshing it. Once you take a breath and you breathe to blow the husk or the sheaves off of the, off of the grain, you have now exercised work and you've broken the law. And then you actually prepared a meal in your hand and you were eating it and so you broke the law preparing a meal. Because those were all supposed to be prepared before the Sabbath. Now, this is just a bit of the tip of the spear of what they believed. There, all this is still written down, and you can go look this up. They were so detailed on what they added to the law, right? The law allowed for mercy and kindness, and Jesus is going to show that, but not in their rules. Remember, they were trying to gain self-righteousness from the keeping of the law. So they had things like this. A scribe, and what does a scribe do? They couldn't carry a pen on the Sabbath. No, no, no pen if you're a scribe. If you were a tailor or a seamstress, guess what you couldn't carry? You couldn't carry a needle. If you were a student, you could not carry books. It was all works. It just gets amazing from there. Anything that was heavier than a dried fig, you were not allowed to use. You were not allowed to carry. You could not If you pick something up in public, you had to put it down in private. Otherwise, it was work. 
They would go as far as this. If you toss something into the air and caught it with the other hand, that was work illegal, broke the Sabbath. This is all stuff in their Talmud. You can, you can read all this stuff. You couldn't kill an insect on the Sabbath. That cockroach climbing up your leg at lunchtime? <laughs> Let it be. You can't kill it. You can't extinguish candles or flame because that would exercise breath to breathe out. It gets worse, folks. There was no bathing. Synagogues were hot at times. And you got Joe Lawkeeper next to you who really needed a bath, but he didn't take it. You couldn't buy or sell on the Sabbath. You could not move furniture lest you scratched your floor and lifted something heavier than a fig. Um, and so there was no moving of furniture, so you could not arrange your furniture on Sunday. You could not boil an egg on Sunday, nor pickle anything, because that would be a process. No treatment of the sick, only to keep them alive. <laughs> I mean, man, God, thank you for the new covenant. Um, look, we're going to barely hang on till nightfall with you. <laughs> Let's hope you make it. Um, you know, nurses, how would this be? You know, difficult times, right, if you're, if you're sick. Women could not look in the mirror on Sundays, or excuse me, on Sabbath. You could not look on the mirror on the Sabbath. Looking on the mirror was vanity, had no room on the Sabbath. This is not of God's word. This is all in the law. A couple more just to... Help you uh, grimace a little more. Ladies, you could not wear jewelry um, unless it was lighter than a fig, a dried fig. You couldn't wash clothes. There was no shearing of sheep or spinning of dyeing of any wool, any of that. No tying or untying of knots. Anybody tie their shoes today? I wear boots. I'm good. Uh, uh, you could not do that. Of course, there was no um, hunting of any sort. And here was the, here's the kicker. A person could not travel more than 3,000 feet from the home or 1,999 steps. Now, well, how did they get around this? Well, when you make rules, you got to make rules so that you can keep your rules, right? So what they did was they carried a piece of board, which I don't know how I got by this, or a rope. And what they'd said was that rope or that board symbolized a, thresh, a threshold of a home. So if I needed to go past my 1,999 feet, I could lay that rope down, cross that, pick up another 1,999 feet. And so maybe, possibly, they were using the old rope theory to follow Jesus in order to get close enough to see him. So the Pharisees and scribes exhausted exhausted the people with these traditions. The Matthew account, Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, he's dealing with a similar account. Jesus says this to them. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? Why do you transgress God? Uh, later on in the New Testament church, as it was getting going, they were wrestling with these same things, right? Galatians is a book written about pure justification without works. Paul goes back to uh, the council of, of elders in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. They have been sharing from 13 forward that Gentiles are coming to faith. And immediately, some of the elders of the Jews began saying, well, they need to keep this and they need to keep this. Here's Paul's response. Listen to this. This is Acts 15.10, worth looking at and reading later. 
Now, therefore, why do you put God to test? This is Paul. By placing upon the neck of his disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That's a great question. Paul challenges the leaders of the church. Why are you putting this weight upon the people? You couldn't keep it. Our fathers couldn't keep it. And yet you press it upon these Gentile believers. Matthew chapter 11. Look there with me. It's because this is a stunning passage, and I want you to see the context of where it's laid at. Matthew chapter 11, you know this text. Chapter 12 is the um, same situation, the same event that Mark 2 is recording. Him and his disciples are working away and skirting alongside a grain field, and, and it's the same one. But look what gets written right before this. I want you to understand that you and I, if you're a believer in here, you have the Spirit of God, and you believe His Word, and, and you've, you, you profess Him as your Lord, you, you see this clearly. But when you are darkened, when your mind is darkened, and you do not know the truth, that's why people react the way they do. Look at verses 28 through Uh, 30, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Just think about that list I read to you. Would you look forward to the Sabbath or not? (laughs) Everything shuts down. These dear friends that we were trying to reach in our ranching community, everything would shut down. If you were with them, they they would, I I remember some gals uh, went with her on a retreat. It was over the weekend and came Friday Friday at sundown. She said, I can't, leave the, I can't leave the hotel room till, till sun up, you know, or, or sundown to sun up. I can't leave. And, and she made everyone stay there with them. And, and so it was just restriction. And, and Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who can't even get to tie your shoes, cannot, cannot lift something, cannot show mercy to somebody. Take, and then he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The very next text, which Matthew is in chronological order, Jesus is dealing with this situation. Right after he says, I have a way that is, that is easy, is light. I'll do the work You will put your faith in me and sense what he's saying. He's preaching the gospel here. Take what I have. And then he shows the example of those who would try to come a different way. And here this heavy burden was upon them. Now Jesus is going to offer this freedom from all this oppressive legalism through his own death as he comes. Third thought, as we go back to our text. The Bible supersedes the traditions of of man. The Bible supersedes traditions. Notice how Jesus handles this. If you go back to our text in verse 25 and 26. Pharisees have said, look, look what they're doing. They're breaking, they're breaking the Sabbath when it's not lawful. So they're equating traditions which are not the law with the law. Jesus immediately defends himself and his disciples with the scriptures and he says this, have you not read? 
It's a great question when you're talking to Pharisees and scribes who supposedly spend their life in the scriptures. Have you not read what David did when he was in, when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How they entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and how, and how he also gave to those who were with him. So Jesus, without hesitation, when this question comes up, without apology, responds to their accusation with great authority and biblical sufficiency. That's what he does. He takes them to the text. Now, it's clear that certainly the Pharisees knew this story about David. This was a hard one problem. And two things, they either reinterpret it or they refuse to deal with it. That's a lot of how they would handle it. Uh, We don't know what to do with this one. In the real meaning, if they dealt with it, if they had to deal with what David did and why God did not strike him dead, if this in fact was God's desire for the law, they would have to uh, express that their, their views were wrong. So they didn't want to deal with this. So Jesus highlights this by saying, have you never read? Now, you know what he's referring to, right? King David's on the run. Um, King Saul is now had it. It's been a tough go. Jonathan's been trying to say, David, I really don't think dad's all that mad at you. David's going, yeah, your dad's mad at me. He wants to kill me. And so they have this little powwow. They, uh, Jonathan goes in and says, look, dad, why are you so mad at, John, uh, at David? And, and this whole blows up, and it's just a big family argument at the table. And finally, Jonathan says, David, you got to go. Dad's going to kill you. It, it's It's over. And, and so here's David and these few men. They are fleeing for their life at a moment's notice. They, they have no uh, ability to fight off King Saul. King Saul has all the resources of the nation's army, and they're fleeing. And they actually end up in this tabernacle. It's probably, uh, if we believe we're right on this, it's probably about a, a mile north of Jerusalem. And, and here he comes, and uh, Ahimelech, it says Abathar because he's the ruling high priest at that time, but Abathar, uh, 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 Ahimelech is the priest that's there. David runs into him and says, hey, we're on, a, we're on a mission. We need some food. We had to move quickly. And he gives him the showbread. Now, the showbread was uh, uh, very important. It was a reminder of what God had done, how he provided for Israel in their time of need. And they would every week cook 12 fresh loaves of bread, put it on the show table, the, the table of presents, and there that was a display to honor God that he met their needs in great, great time. Well, that bread after that week was to be given just to the priest. They alone were to eat that. And Ahimelech gave it to David. And David ate it, and he gave it to his young men, and it it nourished them. And you remember, he also got Goliath's sword there while he was there. And God did not punish David, nor nor did he strike the priest dead for doing that. Now, what's very interesting about that whole lesson is there's a comparison. Because who follows in behind David? Saul. And how does Saul handle that situation? Well, in his anger, he asked his uh, warriors to kill the priest. The priest wouldn't do it. I mean, the warriors wouldn't kill the priest. A man named Daeg, we call him Dog, said, I'll do it. And that day, he slaughtered 85 of God's priests and, and his, their sons right there on the premise for feeding and caring for the need of David. So... You have to set this scene. They know exactly what Jesus is talking about, and they're equating what he's doing. They're equating them to they're in need. His disciples are David. 
you're the one that would rather kill us. It's, it's an obvious comparison, and it probably infuriated them. Infuriated, because they know exactly what King Saul did in that text. You're welcome to go and read that this afternoon, 1 Samuel chapter 22, um, 21 and 22. So Jesus is clearly making the point that showing compassion supersedes traditions. And, and this is the message of the Bible. God is a compassionate God. Go all the way back to the garden. Man rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, rejects God's word, rejects all that God has laid out, believes Satan over a lie. They slip away in shame, nakedness, and fear. And who comes seeking who? God seeks out them. He covers them. He constantly cares for them. He gives them the promise that he will crush the head of the serpent. All of those things. This is, the, this is the message of God's word, that he is a kind and compassionate God who cares for his children. And yet, when you study this text, one of the things that Jesus is bringing out, one of the things the word of God is bringing out, is if you want to hold to traditions, there will come anger, frustration, There'll come those who reject the righteous. It always happens this way. Down through the years, I've been in ministry a long time. It's not hard to pick out a legalist. They're usually not very happy. Because they're frustrated with you. And you and you. Because they set a standard that they believe everybody should live at. And if they don't, then they're frustrated with everybody. And that's what's happening in this text. And Jesus is saying, well, wait a minute. You have a problem with this. God is a God of compassion. What do you do with David? Who clearly broke the ceremonial law of God, ate the showbread, and yet God did not kill him. What do you do with him? And listen, brothers and sisters, there was nothing that they were doing that was outside of the true old covenant law of God. They had skirted a neighbor's field. They had only plucked the heads that were there. They were probably on their way to synagogue. There was nothing outside the law of God written in the Pentateuch. And yet because their traditions had become greater than what God had said, now there was an infuriation with Jesus and his followers. And so Christ uses God's word to prove his point. If God made an exception to aid David, surely it was appropriate for the Son of God to disregard unbiblical religious traditions as he cared for those that were around him. See, the religious leaders were far more concerned with their own authority. Just like Saul, David was an embarrassment to Saul because David chose to obey the Lord. Saul did not. And I either got to get rid of him because it exposes who I really am or I got to deal with my sin. And this often happened. Jesus in the Matthew chapter 12 text says this, Or have you not read the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the law, break, break the Sabbath, and are innocent? Now he's, he's using this as the, uh, the further argument that Matthew records. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. So here's what Jesus is saying. Every Sabbath... There are, there are um, priests and those who work with the priests who light fires and put fires out, who sacrifice animals and skin, all the things that you say through your, your extra-biblical, extra-law materials of traditions, they're doing, they're breaking that every, every Sabbath. Every Sabbath. And said, then he says this, there's something greater here than the temple. 
Now, uh, we've talked about this many times as pastors. We go, man, we're just hosed when it comes to breaking the law on the Sabbath. I work harder on Sundays than I work probably any other day of the week. I'm exhausted by the time I get home. I mean, we pour into all kinds of things on, on, on church day, on, on Sunday for us. And yet, they would not see that this would be breaking of the law. So Jesus here says, look, you break it every Sabbath, and yet they're innocent. Yet they're innocent. So Jesus' statement here is, is something that there's greater something is pointing to him. You're missing the point. All of the Old Testament was focusing and pointing towards me. You're missing that there's something greater in the temple than, than all of these rules and regulations. Every sacrifice, everything lit, everything put out, all of those things were pointing to me. And the only thing greater than all of that would be the Messiah. And so Jesus was pointing to himself. So the explanation of the Sabbath led to his divine authority in con condemning the, the, the Pharisees' practices. When you condemn someone who, who holds so tightly to that they're right and you're wrong, you're going to get a fight. And this fired them up, and the, and the battle was on. But let's look at what Jesus' final words are, because um, in our closing moments here, we want to learn to say, well, how do we handle Sundays? How do we handle a day of worship with the Lord? Look at our fourth thought. The, the worship is for man and Lordship is its goal. Look at verses 27 and 28. After Jesus stumped them with this story of David and how David uh, entered the house of God and, and did not violate the law of God in a way that was bringing on death, after he stumps them with the scriptures, he makes this statement. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God never intended the fourth commandment to restrict kindness. God never, never would have instilled the fourth commandment to restrict, ki restrict kindness and mercy through traditions. And Jesus says here that the Sabbath was made for man. And God graciously was giving Israel under the Old Covenant, don't forget this, under the Old Covenant, this command was given to Israel. It is not given to the New Testament church. It's not a, a covenant given to us. It's not even repeated in the New Testament. But in this command, he was graciously giving Israel under the Old Covenant rest and a time to refocus their priorities. Time to come to the Lord corporately together. However, the religious leaders had reversed this purpose of God. They had reversed that and they made the, the traditions of the Sabbath. Now think about this. They made the traditions of the Sabbath the dictator. And what they do to man, they robbed his worship of God. And Jesus knew these things. He said to them in Matthew 12, 7, he says, But if you had known what this means... I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. See, you missed the reason for what I wrote this down for. It was for compassion. It was for, uh, it was for compassion and not sacrifice. I want you to be compassionate people for those who uh, are less fortunate. Uh, we're going to see next week as we get into chapter 3, he heals a man, a man that, that is totally deformed. 
spend a life of all the problems that would come with that. And there is no absolute concern about the compassion for that man, only that Jesus broke their traditions. And Jesus says, quoting Hosea 6.6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You condemn the innocent. And this is what happens often in churches. We become so rote in what we believe we must keep and not keep that our goal is so focused on these things to justify ourselves, we often find that we become very condemning to those around us. And yet Jesus says, I desire compassion. He's taken us out of the book of Hosea, which they would have known when he quotes this. The book of Hosea is proving why, why, why they are under the judgment of God, why they are um, going into captivity. It's because they rejected a compassionate God who loved them and brought them out of slavery. Now, God had designed the Sabbath with mercy in mind. That's what keeps coming out of these texts when you read these situations. He designed the Sabbath with mercy in mind, and the Pharisees redesigned the Sabbath to be burdensome and smothered with self-righteousness. So it just became this burdensome day. And, and it makes me think, is, is you know, not comparing, because we're not under that law, but is Sunday burdensome to you? Have, have we in our homes, do we make it burdensome? Because you have to understand what he's trying to deal with. It's, this is, Sabbath was a burden. Ladies, everything that you needed to get done on Sunday, you could not do, so you had to get it done, um, excuse me, on Saturday, you had to get done on Friday. Because you couldn't kill a bug, let alone make a meal for somebody. And so it makes you realize when you come to this text, have we done the same thing? Has, has, has our day of worship become burdensome? I mean, let's be honest, sometimes getting the kids ready on Sunday is like way harder than it is on Monday. Why is that? Why can't we get up on Sunday? Why is everybody so tired? But why are we cranky? Why are there fights in the car on the way to church? <laughs> do, we, do we have a wrong view? Do we forget that God desires to gather his people at least once a week to bring them into fellowship so they can learn and grow and desire the things of him? That this is a great celebration as you look around this room full of people that God has redeemed out of the world, has taken their sins and forgiven them, and have given them eternal inheritance that cannot be ever rust or, or fade away. And yet sometimes we've made our day of worship burdensome. See, Jesus is making it clear, I come with compassion. I want people to see who I am. See, their lack of compassion in order to uphold their self-righteous traditions exposed that they were spiritually bankrupt. They had no desire for the things of God. They had desire for the things of themselves. If I'm trying to prove myself that I am worthy of God, I'm not a very fun person to be around. And that was the case here. Notice in verse 28, he makes a statement. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, in the height of this confrontation, this is confrontational. Mark just shows the small view. Matthew shows the larger um, exchange that's going back and forth. This thing is heated. The, these men have now been equated with the problems that happened in 1 Samuel when David fled from the unrighteous Saul and Saul ends up killing
killing all these priests. He's, Jesus is using the word of God to equate the difference of how they look at the things of God. This is very heated. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of this, he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Is Yahweh, is Kyrios, is ruler, master, owner of the Sabbath, is what he is saying. Now the Pharisees knew that God and God alone gave the fourth commandment. And yet Jesus is claiming lordship over that statement. So you can see what they're doing. Not only has he now thrown our traditions out, which we hold dearly, he's now making himself out to be God. You can, they're fired up over this. This is, this is what's fueling them. And here he is saying, look, I'm the son of man. The son of man has lordship over the Sabbath. So he uses this term, you know this term's right out of Daniel chapter 7. They know it's equated with the Messiah. So he's making himself out to be the Messiah, making himself out to be the son of God, making him out to be equal with God, and he's trashing their traditions. The war is on. And they clearly understood that Jesus was claiming this position. Now the Lord of Sabbath means that he gave the Ten Commandments and he has the right to define them. When he said that, they knew that he's saying, I, uh, these are mine, I have them, I'm Lord over them, so I have the right to define them. Must have drove him crazy. And here he is, Jesus, in flesh. And now he, his life and his ministry and his teaching are all characterized by this grace versus this characterization that the, that the people have had in front of them for such a long time, mostly all through those years of silent years. For 400 years, there's been these Pharisees that have ridden, risen up and have showed this self-righteous acting in front of them. Here's this self-righteous, can't live to that standard, and here's Jesus, gracious. You ever been in that situation? Or somebody just acts super gracious and you got all tense and fired up. and You can feel this. You can feel the intensity in this. And so he is demonstrating such a different life. Jesus demonstrates mercy and compassion every day of the week. They only cared about protecting their customs. Jesus is exemplifying the true purpose of the Sabbath. They're twisting the words of God to be, and laying heavy burden upon people. For centuries the Pharisees had added rules and regulations just one after another after another as time went on to try to prove their own righteousness. And Jesus, just in a matter of a very short time on earth, this is, this is probably within the first year of his ministry, says, I'm Lord of it. That's not how we use it. Now, I do want to make sure that we understand as New Testament believers that we don't keep a Sabbath. I know that might be hard if you've been in the South all your life, but but, but show me in the, in the New Testament where we are to keep the Sabbath. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of that. But we gather, we gather, and it isn't hard to study your New Testament and you begin to look at the New Testament. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church met on the first week, first day of the week. And it was to honor that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because if he isn't raised from the dead, what do we have? You know what you're right back to? Keeping all those rules and regulations. So Jesus Christ fulfilled all of that. And so we go, well, what do we do with Sunday? Is it a day that is holier than another day? What do we do with a life that follows the Lord Jesus on one day, but maybe the six others, there's a difference? See, for a Christian, Hebrews 4 makes it very clear, every day is a Sabbath for a believer. Because we're in Christ every day. 
Tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and go to work or um, get up and kids aren't in school yet. You're going to get up and go to the park. Whatever you're going to do tomorrow. Um, tomorrow is a day holy to the Lord. You, you serve him in every day. We worship him in every day. God has set aside a great day, the first day of the week for us. The New Testament apostles set aside so we could come together and rejoice and, and find great joy in gathering around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the true church comes together for worship, instruction, and fellowship out of a love for our God and Savior. Hebrews chapter 10, you know this text, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What is that? Is that, well, a confession of our hope is we keep this, keep this, don't do that, don't eat this. Is that the confession of our hope? The writer of Hebrews said the confession of our hope, knowing you, he tells you all through Hebrews what it is, it is that Christ was the one who sacrificed himself for you. That he came and took away the first. He, he came to usher in the, the second, which is the new covenant, and fulfilled the first. And we hold that. We hold on to that our life is in your hands, Father, because Jesus Christ died in our place. He was our substitute. He propitiated us. He satisfied the wrath of God. We hold on to that, that confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. So our, our, our goal is him, not us. Because so, so people go, well, look, I'm a Christian because I go to church and I, I, go to, I don't go to movies or I make this whole list. No, you're a Christian because Christ died for you. He took your sins away. He appeased the wrath of the Father. Because he was faithful, not you, not me. You, you want to try to get to him through your own faithfulness? Hey, good luck. Let me know how that works out. You'll die in your sins. So here the writer of Hebrews is reminding the church to assemble together and keep and hold on to that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the faithful one. And let us consider how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. So we come together and we, we, we fellowship and we hear what's going on in each other's life and we try to care for them. This church has done that very, very well over the last few weeks. We've had a lot of difficult times. Six funerals in five weeks. And every one of these people have come to us and said, the church has overwhelmed us with their kindness. And you know who those people are? People who are attending regularly. Because they hear about it and they weep with those who weep and they rejoice with them. And they come and they stimulate and they uphold people and they cry with them and they rejoice with them. That's what we do. Because Christ was faithful for us. He goes on to say, not forsaking of our own assembling together. Why as blood-bought Christians would we not want to gather? I mean, I love it that you get away and get vacations and, and all that. There's times, you know I'm away from time to time. But I long to be back with you. You stimulate me. You help me love the Lord Jesus. And so he says, don't forsake this assembling is the habit of some. But come together, encourage one another. All the more as you see the day dawning. Oh, yesterday we, we remembered Dennis Winings. And out of that remembrance, we realize how kind God is, which made Dennis the kind man he was. But, I mean, afterwards, so many of us gathered, we're all like, you know what, I'm a, I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> He's with the Lord, and I'm still here. <laughs> I can't wait to see him. 
the more I study, the more I'm around you and being around the body of Christ. Imagine what that church service is going to be like. We long for him as we see the day coming. And as the day comes, we need each other all the more. And so coming together is worship. So just final thoughts here. Is church made for man or man made for church? Let me just change that a little bit since we're under the new covenant. In other words, is the church burdensome? And I want you to think through this. Do you feel as a duty to come to church? I want you to think through this. Does it feel like a duty to be here? Or anywhere? That's our church. Then you reverse the commandment of Jesus. Do you feel guilty if you don't come to church? In one way, um, if you're just abandoning what God commands us to do, yes, that's probably the Spirit of God um, exposing a hard heart of not wanting to be a church. But there are times where circumstances happened, you know, uh, where we need to get away. So what I'm trying to suppose is there legalism in you, where I feel duty and I feel guilty, and, 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 and there's just no lack of grace in all of that. Or you come to church and there's no grace. You know, we're gracious at home, we're, we're gracious with one another, but we're not gracious at home. We're gracious um, with people when we get to church, but we weren't gracious all the way to church. I mean, we, we want to expose that sometimes we have made church the God versus the God of the church. And there's danger there. There's trade-offs sometimes. I've dealt with this with many men. Um, when we really got down to what was really plaguing them in their worship is they finally said, I'm afraid if I don't go to church, God won't bless my business. And finally it just comes out of them. And I said, that's good. I'm glad you got that out because God already knew it. God is not a God who is trying to gain your self-righteous works out of you in order to accept you. You're accepted through his son alone. And, and, and does coming to church help your business? Absolutely. Because it makes you think right. <laughs> and that fact, God may take your business or, or whatever you're going through through some difficult times, but it helps you. It, it helps, helps you get your mind right as you start the week. You just were fellowshipping with the saints. You were just hearing the gospel. You were there weeping with those and rejoicing with those. It sets your mind right to say, God, I have a job you've given me. I'm a missionary in the world in this area. But that's not the end of all ends. You're coming back someday, and I want to be one who serves you. So let me just give some encouragement here. Worship was made for man. Worship was made for man. Church is an outlet for true worship. And, and what it helps us realize when we come to church is that there's a million things pulling on our desire for worship. When you sit in here and you hear the word taught and you sing songs together, you begin to realize there are a million things that pull on my heart. The things of the world, financial pressure, relationships, all those things, they're all waiting for you outside of here. And so when you come to worship, you, you begin to say, Lord, I'm spiritually drained at times. I need you. I need thee every hour. We sing songs like that to remind ourselves that, Lord, there's so many things pulling on my worship. I want to worship you. Worship does that for us. There's the hope of redeemed sinners can make one voice. I, I, so fun sitting up front. I don't know what you back row people are like, but up front it's really cool. Because, I mean, it just comes blasting forward. And, and, 
today I could hear you singing, it is well with my soul. And, 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 I, and I'm not God in any way, but I, I said, Lord, I hope you hear this. This is your people with one voice singing to you together, thanking you that their soul is well. Isn't that sweet? Where else do you get to do that? I mean, it's great you sing at home, maybe you sing with your family, but here we're from all walks of life. This eclectic group of people that God saves and puts into a body of Christ called the Riverbend Community Church, we with one voice get to share that to God. It's called corporate worship. And God loves corporate worship. He's done that all through the Bible, brings his people together for those scenes. See, the world is full of individualism, isn't it? Everything is about you. How many likes you have? How many, how many followers you have? How many this, that? The world is about individualism. The church is about us together. We're his family. We move as a family. When somebody weeps, we weep with them. When somebody rejoices, we rejoice with them. We pray together. We request God. We petition God together. And, and we move away from this individual world that's out there that's always pulling on you to be you. And here we come together to be God's people. And that's how we make him Lord of our worship. It allows us to focus on one another. We build our prayer less. We give of ourselves to others. It's time to dedicate towards spiritual growth. Lord, you say in your word that you are growing me, bringing me more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's his goal. Take every believer and progressively grow them in the in, image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's done here. That's one of the aspects that God used. Corporate worship, studying the Bible together, learning to grow in those ways. Finally, biblical corporate worship is designed to keep Christ as Lord of everything. It reminds us to keep Christ in the center of everything we do. And we come together and we, we remind ourselves what true Christ-centeredness is. We keep an awe of God. We keep being captured by His glory. Text after text, song after song, brings us into seeing the, the, the high position that Jesus Christ has in our lives and in all things, this is true spiritual fuel for us. And so Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. It's mine. I own it. It is about worshiping me. It's about being kind and compassionate. And there's no greater kind and compassionate thing than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So where his people gather, the gospel is a sinner. And Jesus is the center of that. Father, thank you for a reminder. We pray that as we come together week after week, midweek, um, Bible studies that happen, um, may, maybe even groups that get together, Lord, and pray together, Lord, we want to have Christ as the center of all that we do. He said right here in our text, Lord, that he is the Lord of the gathering. He's a Lord of that assembly. And so, Lord, we ask that you would have that way here. May we keep you as center of all that we do. Father, I do pray for those that maybe are even listening now and we know people in our church who are homebound. Um, they're going through struggles, Lord. Their bodies are giving out. They're not able to be here. And we know as they listen to a sermon like this, they would long to be with us. One dear man recently, Lord, told me how much he'd long to be with us, but could not. We, help, we pray, Lord, that they understand that they are part of us, Lord. And though they are limited physically, we know they're here, Lord. And we love them, we care for them, 
And may they know that they're part of us. But for the rest of us, Lord, if we have the health and strength, Lord, we may not forsake this gathering. It is important to you that your people come together, stimulate one another, remind ourselves what we believe, and encourage each other in this walk till you return for us, Lord. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.